Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Ancient Rome in the English Novel. A Study in English Historical Fiction, published in 1923 and written by Randolph Ferese. This book reveals just how prevalent ancient Rome was when it came to English novels. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. If you find the podcast beneficial, I have a special favour to ask. Please share the podcast with a friend who may also need a good night's rest. It would also be amazing if you could... Please leave a review and comment in iTunes. Leave the show a rating in Spotify. And if you're not already, please be sure to subscribe to the show. If you would like, you can say hello to me at boytosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back relax and enjoy the readings. Ancient Rome in the English Novel A Study in English Historical Fiction For some time, I have felt the need for a satisfactory definition of the classic novel, a definition which should include novels of value and exclude innumerable works of fiction of little or no value. The want of such a definition was evident not only from the vagueness with which literary historians have referred to the classic novel, but also from the fact that other students seemed to consider as such any work of fiction using Greek and Roman names. For a definite selection of theme, I am indebted to Dr. John Cooper Medenhall of the Department of English of the University of Pennsylvania, whose generous advice I wish to acknowledge most gratefully, and whose fine sense for literary form has been an inspiration to me in my work. I wish to express my most sincere appreciation for many helpful suggestions to other members of the Department of English, whose lectures have provided, I feel, a background for this study. I have also to thank Dr. Eugene Stock McCartney of the University of Michigan for freely providing me with a list of titles, which has materially aided me in making complete my list of all works of fiction dealing with ancient Rome. 
It is my purpose in this study to show the use which the English historical novel has made of the rich and abundant material furnished by the life of ancient Rome. In doing this, I shall trace the genesis of the novel of Roman life and its development, with special emphasis upon elements of permanent value, as an aid to a clear perception of this latter point, I shall give a carefully selected list of the best novels of Roman life, pointing out their claims to greatness. At the end of my study will be found a complete list of all books, which make any pretense of presenting Roman life in the form of a novel. Since ancient Rome is often associated with ancient Greece in classical study, the question may arise as to why novels dealing with life in ancient Greece are excluded from consideration here. The answer is that comparatively few such novels have been written. The author who writes of ancient Rome has at his disposal abundant materials from which he may construct a novel. He who writes of the life of ancient Greece finds his sources somewhat more limited. Another consideration which has influenced authors is that modern life is more immediately related to the life of ancient Rome than to that of ancient Greece. The classic period of Greek history was of comparatively short duration and in one sense the life of ancient Greece lost its identity even before it was absorbed by the life of the Roman Empire. While the life of ancient Rome made itself felt in the most remote parts of the widely extended Roman world, we must give full recognition to ancient Greece for her contribution to the world's culture, yet admit that her influence upon the world today has been overshadowed by the power of Rome, the story of Rome's power, rather than that of the culture of Greece, has found expression in the modern novel. A novelist who writes of ancient Rome may deal with any period of Rome's history, from the traditional date of the founding of the city to the time at which Rome ceased to be the head of the Western Empire. A convenient division is made when we speak of Rome before the Empire and Rome under the Empire. Pre-Imperial Rome has furnished the inspiration for comparatively few novels since, however, some of these are of great merit, it will be well to examine certain portions of Rome's early history with which they are connected. One excellent novel deals with prehistoric Italy and the first faint beginnings of Roman things. Immediately following the legendary period of her existence, Rome was chiefly concerned with struggles with her Italian neighbours. These struggles have inspired no great novel in English, 
though several good books for boys have been written about them. The desperate conflict between Rome and Carthage offers material for a novel of strong appeal, but the stirring times of the later Republic present the best field for the novel of pre-imperial Rome. The period of the Empire, however, when Rome was undisputed mistress of the world, is the time which has appealed to most of the novelists who write of ancient Rome. The number of novels or of books masquerading as novels, which make some use of Roman life as a background, is large. Many of these purport to be what they are not. So if one reviews even a small portion of the entire number, it becomes obvious that many, if not most of them, are neither literature nor anything else of value. There is one class of novels whose purpose is not to primarily represent life in ancient Rome, but to make other work attractive in the addition of artificial colouring. The use of such superficial aid in a novel nearly always reveals the absence of any serious purpose. This lack of seriousness is well illustrated by the work of Sir Ryder Haggard in such pseudo-historical novels as Cleopatra and Pearl Maiden, a novel which seems to come a little closer to being truly historical is Unto Caesar by the Baroness Orsi. But on closer examination, this book is found to belong to the artificial class we are discussing. It makes use of a few striking facts in the life of Caligula, but the deep significance of these facts and of its quotations from the Bible is entirely lost owing to the light and cheap sentimentality which pervades the whole volume. A further illustration of pseudo-sanctity is seen in the recent published novel of Dr. Burris Jenkins, Princess Salome. When fantastic and improbable stories are woven around historical characters in a novel, or when facts of deep historical significance are made to aid the novelist in a frivolous pretense, the result is sure to be a work of small merit. Novels in which a supposed setting of Roman life merely conceals inferior work and makes it appear attractive will not be considered in this study. There is a second class of books whose chief purpose is not portrayal of life in ancient Rome, but rather a kind of religious propaganda. They set forth in the form of fiction, some story inspired by the records of the New Testament, or taken from the chronicles of church history. Not all of these books are to be called novels but they have been produced in large numbers and have a significant relation to the kind of novel we are considering. 
many stories of the early Christians, particularly of martyrs in the arena, and may be told in such a way as to portray the life of Rome very inadequately. They often ignore the pagan point of view, and in most cases deliberately misrepresent it. In such a book as Cardinal Wiseman's Fabiola, the emperor and his soldiers are mere abstract representatives of power and evil, while the Christians artificially personify virtue and martyrdom. The work of Mrs. J. B. Peplow is well represented by Pomponia, a moral story of supposed religious experience. Many such books have been written since 1850 and published by religious publication societies. They usually present merely a stereotyped analysis of the character of some Christian martyr, while a smattering of history is used to blindfold, rather than to enlighten the reader. A novel which is truly to portray the life of ancient Rome may well include within its scope the life of the early Christians, but we shall not consider those books which deliberately present either Christians or pagans in a false light. Of special interest to the teacher of history are juvenile stories of Roman history, written for boys in fiction form, since many of these truly portray a part of the life of ancient Rome. It must be observed, however, that books for boys are subject to some limitations not placed upon novels written for their elders. Such well-known authors of books for boys as the Reverend Alfred J. Church and J. A. Henty have recognised that they must present a hero who will appeal especially to boys and that this hero must have adventures illustrating school book history. In Church's book, 2,000 years ago, Spartacus is represented as a truly noble figure, while in the young Carthaginian, Henty makes Hannibal the real hero. But the technical hero in each of these books is an idealised youth, who rushes from one exciting adventure to another. Moreover, both Church and Henty tried to make the study of history instructive by introducing into their fictions for boys' favourite incidents of the history books. The result was that their novels for boys became too heavy with history. The general criticism may also be made of such books for boys that they make too much use of the life of the soldier and the gladiator to the exclusion of other elements in Roman life. There is, however, a fairly accurate portrayal of Roman life from a teacher's point of view. In some books for boys, such books are not to be confused with the religious stories of the Sunday school type 
and have a definite connection with our subject. After excluding novels which use Roman life merely to make other work attractive, or as an artificial background for religious instruction, we find that there still remain a considerable number which attempt to portray Roman life, but are unsuccessful. The novelist may fall short of his aim through lack of scholarship, through want of appreciation of the essential worth of his subject, or through sheer inability to appeal to his readers directly. There may be found on the shelves of public libraries many novels in which the characters have Roman names and are supposed to live in ancient Rome, but many of these novels do not really portray the life of Rome at all. Some of them feebly essay to imitate books of established reputation and prove to be very poor imitations. The present study will be chiefly concerned with these novels, which make a serious portrayal of the life of ancient Rome for its own intrinsic interest. We are dealing with what that form of the historical novel portrays in the life of ancient Rome. The historical novel may be defined as that form of the novel which makes use of historical characters and events as an integral part of the story. Ample support may be found for this definition in the always candid words of Sir Walter Scott, the first really great English historical novelist, in his introductions to the Waverley novels. In the prefatory letter to the Peveril of the Peak, he has the anonymous author of Waverley say, A poor fellow like myself, weary and ransacking with his own barren and bounded imagination, looks out for some general subject in the huge and boundless field of history, which holds forth examples of every kind, lights on some personage, or some combination of circumstances, or some striking trait of manners, which he thinks may be advantageously used as the basis of a fictitious narrative, invested with such shades of character as will best contrast with each other, and thinks perhaps he has done some service to the public, if he can present to them a lively fictitious picture for which the original anecdote or circumstance which he made free to press into his services only furnishes a slight sketch. Again in the introduction to the abbot, Scott says, I naturally paid attention to such principles of composition as I conceived were best suited to the historical novel, and this when he just made it clear that the choice of a famous historical character as subject is the readiest, though the most difficult, way to instant success. 
In a note to the introduction to the abbot, he says, There occur in every country some peculiar historical characters, which are like a spell or charm, sovereign to excite curiosity and attract attention, since every one in the slightest degree interested in the land which they belong to has heard much of them and longs to hear more. The importance of a theme based on famous historical events to a historical novel is attested by Scott in his introduction to Red Gauntlet. Here he says, the Jacobite enthusiasm of the 18th century, particularly during the rebellion of 1745, afforded a theme perhaps the finest that could be selected for fictitious composition, founded upon real or probable incident. In the introduction of Woodstock, Scott says, Nothing indeed is more certain than that incidents that are real preserve an infinite advantage in works of this nature over such as are fictitious. Not every novel which tells a story of the past is a true historical novel. It must make some vital use of historical characters and events if it were to be considered truly historical. But the function of the historical novel is not to teach history as it is taught by the school book. It is rather to aid the reader to a sympathetic appreciation of history in the broader sense. The history that reveals the life of the past with all its significant relations to the life of the present. As Scott explains, the love of knowledge wants but a beginning. The least spark will give fire when the train is properly prepared. And having been interested in fictitious adventures ascribed to a historical period and characters, the reader begins next to be anxious to learn what the facts really were and how far the novelist has justly represented them. Moreover, the aim of the best historical novels is not to escape the present and carry the reader back to the past, but to bring the present and the past face to face. In short, to portray life as it exists and always has existed. The passions, the sources from which sentiments and manners must spring in all their modifications, are generally the same in all ranks and conditions, all countries and ages, and it follows as a matter of course that the opinions, habits of thinking, and actions, however influenced by the peculiar state of society, must still on the whole bear a strong resemblance to each other. A historical novel is great, when it is great because in its study of the life of past it displays the same qualities that give value to the life of today 
The true test of greatness in a historical novel may be defined at once as the test of its success in portraying the past with realistic effect. With this in mind, I have reviewed all novels of Roman life which a most thorough search has brought to light, asking the question, what degree of success do they attain in portraying the life of Rome with realistic effect? We have indicated what novels are to be given an important place in the field of the novel of Roman life, but before considering so fully developed a form as Bulwer's last days of Pompeii, let us see what the soil was from such which a form grew. Since the novel of Roman life is a definite variety of the historical novel, we must first consider the origin of the historical novel as such. The true historical novel, it has been said, portrays the past with realistic effect. Since the time of Scott, historical fiction has in the main followed the example which he set in the historical novels. It is largely due to this fact that some authors have attained notable success in portraying the life of the past with realistic effect. Before Scott's time, historical romances existed often taking such a form as to point directly towards Scott's work, and even attaining much of his success in such a realistic portrayal of life. Yet in 1785, Clara Reeve had somewhat arbitrarily said, The romance, in lofty and elevated language, describes what never happened, nor is likely to happen, this definition does not seem to allow that the historical romance had achieved realistic effect at all, and so does not fairly represent the facts. But it must be remembered that the definition applied not only to the historical romance, but also to another form of the romance, which has been called the Gothic Romance. While Scott's work in the historical novel is, in a sense, a continuation of the historical romance, the Gothic romance better represents the school of fiction which Scott supplanted. For this reason it seems better to dispose of the Gothic romance before we discuss more fully the early development of this historical romance. The Gothic romance begins with Horace Walpole's Castle of Otranto, which has no real historical background. Though the events are supposed to have happened in the 12th or 13th century, Walpole had built a supposed Gothic castle, which he called Strawberry Hill, and the castle became a part of the Gothic romance. Walpole supplied this form of the romance with its familiar supernatural machinery, its ghost, creaking doors, subterranean caverns, etc., which need not be described here. 
It is well to note, however, at this point, that Scott, who adopted some of the saner elements of the Gothic romance, used the supernatural as something inseparable from many of the real Scotch characters whom he described. Clara Reeves, champion of virtue, later called the Old English Baron, is to be noted since it contains both Gothic and historical incidents. The Gothic romance was further developed by Mrs. Radcliffe, Monk, Lewis and others. Mrs. Radcliffe especially influences Scott and the later novel. She develops the description of those aspects of nature which later impressed Byron and is undoubtedly the creator of the Byronic hero. Her Shadoni is all essential Byron's Lara, an individual apart from other men, with a certain nobility of his own and a vital scorn of it all. Lord Byron and his school reproduced certain elements of the Gothic romance and in turn had an influence on the novel, the Byronic hero and the Byronic passion for the terrible aspects of nature will appear in the novel of Roman life and assume a prominent position. The Gothic romance continued to exist after the time of Mrs. Radcliffe. It took various forms, such as the detective story and the fantasy, as well as the tale of terror, with its superstitious elements. Down to 1850, it remained the fashion for almost any novelist to arouse his readers from time to time by a narration of marvellous or terrible events. The Gothic romance served to show that literature is not merely utilitarian, even in its wildest forms. It retained certain marks of the realistic novel and added testimony to the fact that realism and romance are, after all, inseparable. While not making a thorough study of medieval times, it pointed the way for Scott in dealing with this period of the past. It also had an important effect on the novel of Roman life in its formative stage, as will be seen. The so-called Oriental Romance is really a development of the Gothic. It originates with the work of William Beckford in Vathek, an Arabian tale, this was a consummate piece of art of its kind and had a tremendous influence on the writing of the time. Beckford built in Wiltshire an enormous mansion with mysterious halls and galleries in which he tried to realise his dreams of oriental luxury. Vathek was written in French and published in France in 1787. It was translated from the French manuscript by Samuel Henley as an English scholar and published in London in 1786 without Beckford's consent. 
Among other things, Vithek is noteworthy for his descriptions of oriental magic and its employment of what may be called the labyrinth motive. This motive appears in the stories of all ages, its classic example being the story of the labyrinth of Crete. It is used in some of Scott's novels, notably Woodstock, and in many novels of Roman life, in which the characters have to pass through a series of dark and intricate passages in the catacombs of Rome, or cut in the rock nearby some city of Egypt. The use of the Eastern magic is sometimes combined with this motive, and so appears in more than one novel of Roman life. The true historical romance is even more important in its relation to our subject. In tracing its development before Scott, the first important example is found to be Longswood, Earl of Salisbury, an historical romance attributed to the Reverend Thomas Leland of Dublin. This romance produces feudal scenes, such as are found in Shakespeare's historical plays, and anticipates many of the elements of Scott's historical romances. While the story is told, however, with the detail of an authentic historical document, it lacks historical perspective. Longswood stood alone for a time, except for Clara Reeves' Old English Baron. This romance of Clara Reeves combined historical and gothic incidents, as already mentioned, and had the effect of adding historical details to the customary castle and ghost in the gothic romance. Built in 1783, appeared the recess, which is the first of a series of historical romances down to Scott, and marks a closer approach to the true historical novel. Its theme is the same as that of Kenilworth, and may owe something to Shakespeare's Anthony and Cleopatra, as Kenilworth does. Many of this series of romances do, in fact, derive their history from Shakespeare's historical dramas. They show an increasing attention to the facts of history, which culminates in the romances of Jane Porter. Jane Porter's imaginative treatment of history far surpasses any previous attempts. Her Thaddeus of Warsaw is almost wholly historical, though deficient in the characterization and plot. While preparing to write the Scottish chiefs, she actually visited the places which she intended to describe. And that concludes tonight's reading. I hope you enjoyed listening to this story, and I also hope that you have slowly fallen asleep. Good night.